in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 and 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We have shifted gears into that first part of the ministry of Christ, and specifically here, one of the first miracles that he did. We see it's, it's the first recorded miracle, and it's at a wedding. You look at this, and you look at what's taking place here, and where it is, and we see the the, the place that the Lord places on, on weddings. Weddings are, are just an incredible time together, isn't it? A time for us to, to, to be together and to watch a covenant that is being made, a covenant that's being made between a husband and a wife before those who are in attendance, and most importantly, before the Lord our God, a covenant that's being made to, to be faithful to one another, a covenant that's being made to keep these promises to one another and just this display of what's taking place. Weddings are not something that we've invented. It's something that, that God invented. Um, tells us that he rejoices over us as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And I'll tell you, I, it is as clear as, this, as if it happened yesterday of, of picturing my, my beautiful bride the door is open, and she's walking down that aisle, and just the joy that, that I had, and, and, and thinking that's, that's the way that, that he finds joy over, over us, his people. But we want weddings to be perfect, don't we? We go to a wedding, and, and everybody wants the wedding to turn out perfect. There's nerves that are there, and the bride is, is, is wanting everything to be just, just how she always dreamed, and Frequently, it doesn't work out that way, does it? Um, I try to warn couples beforehand, just, just so you know, it's about the covenant that's being made. This, this, it doesn't have to be perfect. Nobody will notice most of that stuff. And if they do, it's just funny and it happens and, you know, it's just a part of the ceremony. But th- there has been some that, that I've experienced that have been um, very memorable. Um, I think of, of, of one poor mother of the bride that had to walk down and right before she, the, the wedding started, she put her dress on and realized that they left the big safety plastic thing on the back of her dress and she was just devastated. What do I do? I, 
my choice is to break this thing off and have a big blue stain on it or to wear it and look like I just ripped it off, you know? And, and, <laughs> and there she walked down the aisle. I, I think of another one where just the, the day of the wedding, there was this just huge storm that took place and knocked out all the power. And so there was no power in the church and they were scrambling to find candles and just lit the whole place up with candles and, and, and just the panic that took place. What do we do? There's no power the toilets operate by power. What do we do? They got outhouses in. I mean, it was just crazy on, on the day of. I think of another couple that they did what, what frequently happens in weddings where they take two different colors of, of sand and they, they say, you know, these two colors represent these two people and they, they both have different aspects of their life and they're going to be mixed together just as they're mixed together and they'll be forever united and it'll be a different color and their lives are going to change and so they poured it into this big glass vase and the groom just wanting to make sure it was extra mixed just kind of did that and it shattered in his hand and fell to the ground and sand all over the place and someone in the audience said well that's not a good sign On top of it, his, his hand got cut, so there's blood dripping all over the place the rest of the ceremony. And... But, but they are like nine years strong to this day, and are just solid. But things happen sometimes that you just don't expect. And we find that, we find that happening in, in our text this morning. We see that it was on the third day that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And we look at this in, in this particular culture, this is something that you did not want to happen. Um, the wine would have been a big part of, of a ceremony. If you think of trying to, to go back into, into those particular days in there was no refrigeration, so you couldn't just have juice that was there. The juice would ferment, um, go bad after a very short period of time. And so wine became a, a, a major part of, of how they would celebrate, how they would drink something other than water. Not only that, but, but frequently what, what we're told is that they, they would typically mix the, the wine, maybe three to, to one. So one part wine and three parts water to make it so that it was diluted and, and something that would make it so that water was both purified and, and, and would taste some, in such a way that would just bring joy to the people. I, I think sometimes people read a passage like this. It's, it's frequently um, high school students and people in early college that and this may have been you where it's like, see, mom, dad, Jesus drank wine. Come on, he drank wine. And and I think that, that, that if my kids ever say that to me, I, I think my response will be like, yes, and, and let's just be concerned about everything that Jesus did, shouldn't we? Every area of his life. Not looking at this as a license to, to drink, because it, it is without question that Christ was never drunk. It's, it's, it's without question that he never drank more than, than would have been just perfect to the glory of God, because he was without sin. God tells us whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so for us to use that kind of argument as far as, well, I, I can drink, I should be able to drink, Jesus drank wine. Um, may God just place upon our hearts just the, the reality that, that we want to follow Christ in everything that he did. 
pursuing and living in such a way that Christ lived, where he lived in complete righteousness, complete holiness, always doing the things that please the Father. And so we, we see here that they've run out of wine. And like I said, that this is something that, that was um, a, a horrible thing to happen in a wedding. In fact, there's, there's records in, in history that, that, that at this particular time, if you, if you ran out of wine, specifically if ran out of wine, that there could be a lawsuit against the bridegroom where this was something that was expected. You're supposed to provide for this particular aspect of the wedding. You're, you're supposed to be there to show that you can provide for your wife in the future. And it would have just been something that was a complete disgrace at, at that particular time. Um, we, we, we live in a, in, a, in a different time, don't we? we? There's things about our culture that are, are odd to me. I, I, I think of um, going to Romania and going to a wedding and... They invite you to the wedding, and they just say, if, if you'd like to come, it's going to be $50 a person or however much the wedding costs. And love to have you come. Send in your check, and you, you can come. And we, we said, well, in America, we don't do that. You know, well, how do you pay for a wedding? Well, the, it's, it's either the, the bride's family or sometimes the bride and groom's family. They come together. Sometimes it's the bride and groom that help pay. And, and their response is, that is crazy. Why would you ever expect a young couple who's just getting married to pay for all of these people to come? And so we're going to institute that from now on at our church. <laughs> You'll get your, your bill. Yeah. But there's different cultural things. At some place it happened. I don't know when it happened, but it's kind of stuck here in, in America. We see here, though, that without a doubt, though, the, the bridegroom, the groom, was supposed to be the one who was to supply that particular aspect of, of, of the wedding. And it appears in our text that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was very involved with this wedding. Um, it may have been a family member who was getting married. Um, she may have been one that was, was very close and, and maybe in charge of that particular aspect because she's there and looking at all that's taking place and, and, and she's, she's saying that they've, they've run out of wine. There is no wine. Specifically, he goes to Jesus and says, there is, there is no wine. Why, why would she go to him? Part of, part of it would be that she knew who he was. This is his first miracle that he's done in his ministry, but she knew who he was. And also, you got to think that from the time that he was little all the way through, I mean, he never gave bad advice. He, he always knew the right step to take. He's God. He's one who always did the things that were right. She goes to him. And says, they have no wine. Jesus' response was, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we look at this and you're, you may be thinking in modern English terms where I don't refer to my wife as woman. Get me another burrito. You know, we, we don't. I say, sweetheart. 
get me a, no, we, we don't refer to, to, to our wives or to our moms as woman. But this isn't something in, in, in which Jesus is, is saying this to her in a way that's rude at all. For once again, he's God. Once again, he fulfilled all righteousness. In fact, you see it where, he, where he's at the, the cross and he's hanging on the cross and he is, is about ready to breathe his last. And some of the last words on the cross was that he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so we see this as he's, as he's looking at his mom there as he's hanging from the cross. Woman, behold your son. He's not saying it to her in a, in a derogatory way at all as he's speaking to his mother. He's saying it in a way of, of affection, but at the same time, recognizing that, that he is the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And she's his mother, but there is a, a place in which he is going to a specific hour of going to the cross. And there is a specific purpose in, why, in which why he is here. And for that reason... He says, what, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, we, we look at this and there's, there's something very big taking place as we read this particular passage. Jesus doesn't do miracles simply, as we find in, in Scripture, um, simply to benefit somebody financially. Um, he's not doing miracles in, in, in such a way that is not without a lesson that's there for us. And we're going to see this as we go through. What's taking place here primarily is that he's, he's here and, and they've, they've run out of wine. The wine is... Just that picture of, of in Scripture, of, of joy. You, you find it in, in Psalm 104, verse, verse 15, where it says, and wine that makes glad the heart of man. And, and you see it symbolically through Scripture. It, makes, it makes, makes glad the heart of man. Or in Luke 22, in verse 17, it says, and he, referring to communion, he took, up, he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Meaning, I will partake in the wine when the kingdom of God comes. When that celebration takes place. It's a picture there of, of joy. So now there's, there's no wine. He specifically says, my hour has not yet come. Why would he, he say that? You'll find this going as, as a theme throughout the book of John. My hour has not yet come. You, you see it in John 7 and verse 30 where it says that they, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You'll see the same phrase again in John 8 verse 20 where it says, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. In John twelve twenty three, it says, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of, that, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now the hour has come. In John 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of, of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, um, looking for that hour in which Christ would, would be crucified on the cross. In John 17 and verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. The hour had come. So here, Jesus is there at the beginning of his ministry, specifically with this circumstance with the wine, and says to his, 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 his mom, my hour has not yet come. What does this to do with me? Why are you asking? It's not that time yet as far as my hour has not yet come. Surely there was something going on in the, in the mind of, of his mother Mary saying, now's the time where these things, all of these things will take place. And Jesus is saying, no, not at this time. Well, we continue on and, and, and look at this. Well, one thing, just as a side note, I think is important is there's those that would use this particular passage to, to say that we, when we pray, are first to, to pray to, um, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, that we're to, to go to her to, to ask things so that she could get Christ to, to do things. And so that particular theology comes from, from this. And I, I think it's, it's just very clear that that's not what's taking place here. It's not that, that Jesus is like, well, I don't want to do this, but Mom, since you asked, I have to. It's, just, it's, it's, it's a wrong way of thinking. We, we, we are able to go directly to the Lord. We're able to go directly to God to ask anything. And, and he is the one that is our mediator. He is the one who is our high priest. He is the one in whom we pray to. And so we come and we look and we continue on. And, and Mary, in verse 5, says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So whatever it was that, as far as the tone in which Jesus said it or the way in which he replied to his mother, her response is still one of, Hope in he always does the right thing. So whatever he says to you, looks to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Obey him. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Six water pots and when you start looking at some of these things, I think that, that there's a, a specific reason why all of these things are being stated. One here is, is really good. It begins with there's six water pots. All through Scripture, what you find is that the number of six is used in reference to man. It's reference to man. There's six water pots there. Not only are there, are there six water pots, there's six water pots that are made out of stone. Not made out of gold, not made out of silver, not made out of anything like that. But there's six water pots that are there, made out of stone. According to the manner of the purification of the Jews, these, these water pots have a specific purpose. They used it ceremonially. They used it for the cleansing. They would have water that was in these pots, and they would take the water and use it to clean themselves so that they'd be ceremonial clean, that they could approach God. They would come and they'd wash themselves and use that water to be that which would, would clean them. Um, these external washings that would, would take place. But these particular water pots are empty. 
So you have these stone water pots, six of them, and they're empty. They would come and they would go about washing themselves with this particular water, but there was no joy at all in the washing. There was ritual that would take place, and that's where God's people had come to. That's where the Jews had come, to a place of, what do we need to do? Just tell us what we need to do. We need to make these sacrifices. We need to obey these particular ceremonies. We need to wash ourselves in this particular way. And the, there was a whole, a whole slew of, of laws that had been set up what the Sabbath was, how far you could walk on the Sabbath, what it meant to set up a tent, how many stoves do I need to have, how many pots and pans do I need to have, how do I make sure that I never mix the the milk with with the meat. And and, and so there's all of these laws that were set up, and here we have just a symbol of their laws, a symbol of, of what they're trying to keep as far as man is concerned. Six water pots there for purification. No joy that's in it. Arthur Pink says, Judaism still existed as a religious system, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Well, here's the Lord. He says to them in verse 7, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Fill the water pots with water. So the servants go and they just, they fill them. Not only do they fill these water pots, but they fill it to the brim, as high as they could possibly fill these water pots. And Jesus says to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. He's doing something incredible. He's taken what was the law to them and these six particular Water pots used for purification takes them in these, these water pots in which there is no joy and fills them with the wine of joy. Fills them completely. Trans, transforms it to, to wine. Miraculous what's taking place. Something in, in which these servants are just, they're, they're doing it. They're doing what God calls them to do. They're doing what Jesus has asked them to do. Mary just says, whatever, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And they do it. And God's going to accomplish something that's incredible. This is such an example for us as God's people. There, there is times where God tells you to do things. There's times where God specifically, you go through God's word and, and he commands us in a, a myriad of different ways. Live this way. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He talks about purity and what that should look like for those who are not married. Talks about what it is to find a spouse and what that should look like. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He goes through, he gives us details of, of what our lives are supposed to look like. Gives us all kinds of, of, of commandments. Tells husbands, this is how you're supposed to love your wives. Love them as Christ loved the church. That's your aim, is to love her like that. Tells parents how to raise their children. Tells us how to work, how, or the, the way it is that, that we should think. Tells us how we should spend our money. Tells us to, to glorify him in all of these things. Tells us to exercise the gifts that are within us. Tells us not to forsake the gathering together of the body, that there's a reason why all these things take place. And I'll tell you, 
there's times for us where we may look at these things and say, why? I want to do that. That makes sense. I'm so happy with this person. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it anyhow. Times where we look and we say, no, I, you know, everybody, everybody drinks. Everybody does that. It's not that big of a deal. It's, hey, that, that's legal in some states. I could do that. All my friends are, are, are living together. All my friends do that. And, and we start to think in our minds, no, I don't, I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to do it my way. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I can't begin to, to emphasize to you just my heart on this is, f- please do things God's way. Your way will lead to de- destruction, always. You, you, you come to a place of seeing lives that are just in a, a downward spiral, and, and, and people look and say, why how is it like this? How have I got to this place? And my thought is just, you've done it your way. You just keep doing it your way. God says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And, and you look and say, I don't care what you say. I don't want to do that. I love this more than, than, than you and what you're asking me to do. And I'm going to do it my way. I think my way is better. And they continue to live in such a way of doing whatever is right in their own eyes till they come to a place where it's just, how did my life get to be such a mess? Why is my marriage like this? Because you're not loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. That's not your, your aim. You, you, you're, you're mean. You're not kind. You're not patient. You go through, and, and, and wives likewise to, to their husbands, not, not loving properly, not, not having a heart of just biblical, godly submission, not being in a place of, of wanting to obey looking at our lives and doing things the way that we want to do, working in a way that we want to work, experimenting with things that we want to experiment with, and finding ourselves in a place of just a downward spiral. And I encourage you, do things God's way. You look at this, and there may be times where God calls you to do something, and you look and you say, it doesn't make sense. These guys could have said, they ran out of wine. Why do you want us to fill these water pots up with water? Why would you? Doesn't make any sense at all. Why fill it to the brim with water? It's wine that we need. We have plenty of water. It's wine that we need. Or you want us to draw from these water pots and take them to the master of the ceremony and give the water to him to drink? You want us, you want us to do that? In their minds, they could rationalize and say, it doesn't make sense. You've said this, but it doesn't seem right. I don't want to do that. It's going to be embarrassing. Nobody would do that. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, God was doing something amazing here. He was coming to, 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 to radically change this huge problem that was taking place at this particular wedding. And he was going to bless them with the most incredible wine that they had ever had. See this taking place here. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that it was made wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He says to him, Every man at, at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you've kept the good wine until now. What is, what is taking place? 
this wine is brought, the man drinks it and just says, this is the most incredible wine I've ever had. Without a doubt, I mean, it, Christ made it. And you look at this and you have pots of water and there's, there's, no, there's no grapes. There's no time to crush them. There's no time for them to ferment. There's no time for any of these things to take place. Someplace here in, in the gaps between these verses, fill the water pots with water. They filled them to the brim. Draw some out. They take it and it's the best wine that they could have ever have hoped for. Better than they had ever tasted. And you look at this and it's the way that God works, doesn't he? He blesses us in ways that we had no idea that he could ever bless us with. Ways that are just going to fill us with so much joy. So the way the world works is they, they try to give the best now. What's the best thing for me right now? Give that which is inferior later. Charles Spurgeon wrote or preached two different sermons, I believe, in, in one day, one in the morning and, and one in the evening. And the one in the morning dealt with the world's way of, of looking at this and the way in which the world says, do whatever is the best, bring out the best now, whatever makes me the happiest now, do that. And the inferior always comes later. And it's true. You look and, and the, the world says, fulfill pleasure now, whatever it would bring you the most pleasure, do that now. doesn't matter how it's going to affect other things in my life. I want to do what I want to do now. I want to get the most pleasure now. And it operates that way. Not realizing the, the terrible fruit that will come for it, from it and, and the place that it will leave you later on with nothing. Whereas God has it such that we, we are saved, but what is taking place now is nothing in comparison to the wine that will come for all eternity. You think of heaven and what you experience here now. The joys that we have as being believers, the joys that we have just... In this life, they're nothing compared to all eternity. In this particular sermon, Spurgeon said, But what must be the fellowship of heaven? I fail tonight in attempting to talk to you of the, the best wine for this simple reason. I believe there are very few men that can preach of heaven so as to interest you much. For you feel that all we can say is, is far behind the reality that, that we might as well have let it alone. He says that the day may come, perhaps, when I may talk more copiously of, of these blessings. But at the present, in my own soul, when I begin to talk of the communion of heaven, I seem overcome. I cannot imagine it. For the next thought that always succeeds my first attempt to think of it is a thought of overwhelming gratitude coupled with the kind of fear that this is too good for such an unworthy worm as I. It was a privilege for John to put his head on the master's bosom, but that is nothing compared with the privilege of laying in his embrace forever. Oh, we must wait until we get there. 
And as one of old said, in five minutes, you shall know more of heaven than I could tell you in all my life. I'll tell you, I, I love talking about heaven. I'm a little bit different here, but I'm kind of convicted by it. You look, I, I love talking about heaven. I, I, I love thinking of you enter into everlasting joy, joy that's inexpressible, joy that is full of glory. You enter into the joy of the Lord. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I, I think of the fellowship that we have. He, he, there's no more sin. There's no more sorrow. He wipes away our tears. They, they make streets of gold. And, and, and he's there and he's on his throne and there's a rainbow around his throne and there's lightning and thundering coming from his throne. And and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and he's there and shining, and there's no need for the sun because he's there in his brilliance shining. I love thinking of heaven. I love looking and thinking, what is it going to be like? What will it be like? And yet, I agree with Spurgeon that I could preach on heaven for the rest of my life, and you'll learn more in the first five minutes than all the preaching that I could ever do on heaven for my lifetime. You're going to be there, and I... I I assure you that your thoughts will be, you didn't even scratch the surface of the joys that I've experienced. I'll be there. I think of my last breath here on, on earth and what the next breath will be like in, in heaven. And I just think, oh, it's just going to be amazing. I, I see people when they take their last breath, and I think they, they were in so much pain just now, and now they're in heaven. I think of the contrast and what that must be like and what it must be like to be in fellowship with him and to see him and to see him in all of his glory. And yet, I'll tell you, you, you will be there and you will think, you didn't even come close to describing it. I mean, if he tells us that we enter into the joy of the Lord, we can imagine joy here on earth. The joy of watching your bride come down that aisle. Joys that we have. Joys of seeing our children born, Jonathan will say, what was better, when I was born or when you married mama? What was more joyful? What was more joyful? Were you happy when I was born or when Natalie was born? What was, happy? What was, what was the best? And, and we respond like, oh, I just can't even tell you. Like, it was just all joyful. It was just incredible. But you take the joys that we have in this life, the greatest joys that you could ever possibly have in this life, in every moment in all eternity will be infinitely greater than that. And we can't even comprehend that. You think of seeing him in his glory, and I know, like, more than likely, there's just an incredible image in your mind of seeing him. You think of, of Moses there up on the mountain, God saying, I'm just going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to just pass by because you can't even see me and, and live. The glory of him just shining like the sun and the joy that's there. No pain, none of that. Everything new. But I'll tell you, five minutes there will supersede a lifetime of thinking on these things and studying these things and looking at these things.
Spurgeon goes on to say again, if we have the best things to come, dear friends, do not let us be discontented. Let us put up with a few of the bad things now, for they only seem to be so. A traveler who is on a journey in a hurry, if he has to stay for a night at an inn, he may grumble a little at the want of accommodation, but he does not save very much because he is off tomorrow. He's only stopping a short time at the end, and he says, I shall get home tomorrow night. And then he thinks of the joys of home. He does not care about the discomforts of his hard journey. You and I are travelers. It will soon be over. We may have had but a, a very few shillings of a week compared with our neighbor, but we shall be equal with him when we get there. He may have a large house with a great many rooms. While we had it, it may be only one upper room. We shall have a, a large mansion in his paradise. We shall soon be at a journey's end, and the road will not be significant so long as we have got there. Come, let us put up with these few inconveniences on the road, for the best wine is coming. Let us pour away all the vinegar of murmuring, for the best wine shall come. And that's how God is. Such a radical contrast between the way the world does things and the way God does things. We partake in all that we do right now, but there is the best wine that is in the future for us. That's how God operates what he makes and the way he fills those pots to the brim is such that we will never be in want of anything for all eternity. May we not have a mindset on this journey of I wish I had that or I'm going to grumble about this or life is so hard in this area. But may we look and just be like that traveler that goes to the hotel and looks and says, I'm just here. It's okay. It's not that bad. The fact of the matter is, is I'm almost home. I'm going home. Pastor Bill broke his wrist yesterday or the day before. Um, Faye acting, her heart stopped. They resuscitated her, took her to the hospital. They put a pacemaker in her, maker in her, and she's doing so much better. But Pastor Bill, at, um, there in his mid-90s, fell and broke his wrist. And I asked him, I said, are, are you doing okay? He said, oh, I'm not going to complain. I broke my wrist, but it's just, it's more embarrassing than anything else. I fell. I'm fine. I'm not worried about me. I'm just happy my wife's doing well. And you look, and, and you could think, like, for Pastor Bill, he could look at it like, you know, my wife's in the hospital, and she's getting a pacemaker, and now I got a broken wrist, and I'm 90, and this is, I, I broke my left hand, and I'm left handed. Why couldn't it be my right hand? And you could just start to think of the grumbling could take place. But he just doesn't. He just says, I'm fine. Don't worry about me at all. I'll be fine. And I look, and it's just, he's, he's just traveling. He looks and says, I'm, I'm almost home. There's no point in complaining about this right now. I'm, I'm almost home. Well, this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was the beginning of the miracles, the signs that he did. It's the beginning of it. Turning water into wine. Look at this. What a God we serve. He turns water into wine, blesses his mom, but saves the circumstances there at the wedding. The best wine that they could ever hope for. Save the best for the last. 
not only that, but he revealed himself to the servants. The servants are the one that filled the, the water pots with water. They're the ones that are, are taking it and, and just taking it to the master and saying, here it is. And he's drinking and saying, it's the best wine I've ever had. Who does Jesus reveal himself to? The servants. The servants, those that would be considered the least. The disciples were there. Mary was there. But they saw, and it tells us, he manifested his glory. He's just beginning to show the disciples who he is. And we're going to go through this, and you're just going to be in awe of our Savior over and over again as we go through the book of John. This is just the beginning. It's the beginning. And in this, he manifested his glory. Do you see it? Absolutely. You look, and you see a God that just says, takes water and just makes it into wine with no effort at all, making something out of nothing. There's nothing that's too hard for him. What a God we serve. To be able to think that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we may be in a place where it seems as if our pots are empty. There is no wine. But that, uh, that is not too hard for him. It's not too hard for him. Not only that, but he has taken those, those pots that were used for cleansing and he has Filled them with the joy of wine that's to the brim. That's more than we could ever possibly hope for or use. And we will enjoy it for all eternity. What a God we serve. Let's come before him in prayer and in a time of worship. Lord God, we thank you so much for our text this morning. The disciples saw this and they believed. You revealed yourself to them. You revealed yourself to the servants. You worked in such a way that it's just miraculous. But you paint a picture for us of just the emptiness of our own efforts. And yet the way in which you fill us with joy. May we not be about the law, the cleansing trying to obey everything that you've called us to obey, but may we find joy in you and be in a place of knowing that you've given us just all of your righteousness, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've taken away all of our sin and you've replaced it with an inheritance that's incorruptible and it's undefiled and it doesn't fade away and it's reserved in heaven for us. It's kept by the very power of God. And we look and, 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 and may it just cause our hearts to be amazed at your glory and filled with thankfulness. And may every person who is here this morning find ourselves like the disciples believing in you, trusting in you for our salvation. For it is you who took our sins upon himself on the cross and gave us your righteousness. And you tell us whosoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. And we love the gospel. We love the gospel that saved the disciples and that saves us. A God who has made a way for us to spend eternity with him. Truly, Lord, you've brought the best wine out and you save it for all eternity for us. May our hearts respond properly now with worship unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.